Chapter 12 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Struggle on Long Island. With Parker there had come to America a British soldier who was destined to play a very important part in the struggle which was then going on. This man was Lord Cornwallis, and when Clinton returned to New York he at once became an active worker in Howe's army. For the British, who had sailed away from Halifax when they had evacuated Boston, had now come to New York, as Washington had thought they would do long before this time. Led on by his belief, the American leader had left Boston, and with his men, had himself marched hastily for New York, well aware that the struggle would now be transferred to the Middle States. New England did not suffer much throughout the remainder of the war, for the British, knowing how rough the coast there was, and how rugged were the men, and at the same time aware of the many Tories who were to be found in and near New York, and of the greater wealth there, and influenced also by the fact that their ships could be a great aid to the soldiers, decided upon that region as their next battleground. The South also, for some time after the defense of Fort Moultrie, was not to be seriously troubled, for there was no great wealth to be found there. The Patriots were very stubborn, and if the British could secure New York and the Hudson, they trusted that their armies in Canada would be able to make their way up through Lake Champlain and join their comrades in Albany. And so, by effectually splitting the colonies apart, particularly Massachusetts and Virginia, they would be able to crush the rebellion that very summer. Howe was, as we know, a man who felt great sympathy for the struggling Americans. He had come across the ocean reluctantly, and only because he had been ordered to come, and he was in great hope that he might, by offering the olive branch, as he expressed it, be able to bring about peace once more. Washington had arrived at New York some time before the coming of Howe, and had used his army in fortifying various places, and making such provisions for defense as lay within his power. At this time the men in his ranks were better fitted to use the shovel than the gun, but with all his efforts the American commander was not able to do very much. And so few were his followers that he could not even station anyone on Staten Island to dispute the landing of the British there. The Redcoats accordingly occupied that island on the 28th of June, and their presence greatly alarmed the Whigs in the surrounding region. Harshly as the Whigs were at times treated, the British army seemed to be even more angry at the Tories, and blamed them for all the trouble that had arisen, which was not altogether just or fair. When Washington had come to New York, Governor Tryon had fled for safety to a British ship in nearby waters. But so bitter was his hatred that he and the mayor of New York, David Matthews, and various other prominent men, formed a plot that was as dastardly as it was cruel. This plot was to blow up the magazines of the Americans and capture General Washington, who was either to be murdered or tried for treason and hanged. There were reports, current at the time, that the scheme was to poison Washington, and it is even said that his cook had been bribed to place poison in a dish of peas, of which the general was known to be very fond. The following account is taken from a newspaper, the Pennsylvania Journal, of those days. Quote, Since Friday last, a most barbarous and infernal plot has been discovered among the Tories in New York. 
Two of General Washington's guards are concerned. A third, whom they attempted to join them, made the first discovery. The general report of their design is as follows. Upon the arrival of British troops, they were to murder all the staff officers, blow up the magazines, and secure all the passes of the town. Gilbert Forbes, a gunsmith in the Broadway, was taken between two and three o'clock on Saturday morning and carried before our Congress who were then sitting. He refused to make any discovery, upon which he was sent to jail. The Reverend Mr. Livingston went to see him early in the morning, and told him he was very sorry to find he had been concerned, that his time was very short, not having above three days to live, and advised him to prepare himself. This had the desired effect, and he requested to be carried before Congress again, promising to discover all he knew. Several have since been taken, between twenty and thirty, among them the mayor. They are all now in confinement. Their party, it is said, consisted of about five hundred. Unquote. Two other extracts from the newspapers of the time will explain the methods employed by the angry soldiers to protect their leader and bring the plotters to justice. Quote, Yesterday, 23, the mayor was examined twice and returned prisoner under a strong guard. We have now 34 prisoners, and many more it is expected will be taken up. A party of our men went over to Long Island on Saturday last to take up some of the Tories. They returned yesterday and brought to town one Downing, who is charged with being in the hellish plot. They took six more prisoners and put them in Jamaica jail on Long Island. The Tories made some resistance and fired on our men in the woods. Our men returned their fire, wounding one man mortally. They then called for quarter. Quote, this forenoon, June 28, was executed in a field between Colonels McDougall and Huntington's camp, near the Bowery Lane, New York, in the presence of nearly 20,000 spectators, a soldier belonging to His Excellency General Washington's guards, for mutiny and conspiracy. Being one of these who formed, and was soon to have put in execution, that horrid plot of assassinating the staff officers, blowing up the magazines, and securing the passes of the town on the arrival of the hungry ministerial Myrmidons. During the execution, Kip, the moon cursor, suddenly sank down and expired instantly. Unquote. Lord Howe, upon his arrival July 12, 1776, and we may be well assured that he had no sympathy for the fiendish plot in which Tryon and the others had been engaged, moved, first of all, by his sincere desire for peace, sent a letter to Washington, in which was a proclamation that promised forgiveness to all who would desist from rebellion and aid in restoring tranquillity. This letter he addressed to George Washington, Esquire, not having power or permission to recognize officially that there was such a thing in existence as a Continental Congress or a commander of an army sanctioned by that body. In a dignified manner, Washington declined to receive a letter addressed after that fashion and insisted that Lord Howe, if he wrote as a commander, should also recognize him as another. Howe, we know, was very desirous of avoiding bloodshed, and when his messenger returned with the word he had received, quote, that there was in the American camp no such individual as George Washington Esquire, unquote, he waited a few days and then sent Colonel Patterson with another letter. This officer was of high rank and influence, and it was thought that such a man would be received by the American general. Washington did permit him to come into his presence, 
but when the letter he carried was seen to be addressed to quote, George Washington, Esquire, etc., unquote, again the leader refused to receive it, though by the gracious manner in which he received the British officer, he won that soldier's love and admiration. When Howe perceived that his opponent would not yield, still hoping to bring about peace without fighting for it, he sent the officer of the pardon he was authorized to grant to the loyal governors of the various colonies. But unfortunately, these gentlemen were in no position to scatter his gracious words. Tryon was on shipboard, and apparently had no disposition to try to land until the Redcoats had provided a safe landing place. Other governors had been cast into prison by the angry Whigs, and so they, too, were powerless to aid the good wishes of the British leader. Congress, however, came to the aid of Lord Howe, and of their own accord ordered his proclamation to be printed and scattered, and when the people read it, they looked upon it as simply a huge joke, and gave it no serious thought at all. When the English admiral and his brother perceived that the patriots intended to fight for what they believed to be their rights, they too prepared for battle, not dreaming that much of a stand could be made against them. Altogether, including the Hessians whom Lord Howe had brought with him, the British force consisted of more than 25,000 men, and greatly outnumbered those in Washington's army. Besides, the Continentals were poorly equipped and without experience or training, and the British soldiers were well known to be the very best in the world. While Howe had been delaying and holding forth his olive branch, Washington had been very busy doing the best in his power to strengthen his position, which was a very difficult one to hold. Brooklyn Heights seemed the best place to fortify strongly, and so he had placed trusty Nathaniel Green there with 9,000 of the troops and they had been working with desperate zeal through the intervening days. When Howe at last perceived that the Americans were deadly in earnest, he quickly determined to throw the bulk of his army against the place Green had been fortifying, for he was as well aware as Washington that if this spot could once be occupied, he would hold New York in his power. Unfortunately, Green was taken ill and was unable to command the men there in person and Washington, not knowing but that Howe might not after all change his plan and fall upon the city instead of attacking the heights, dared not to come to the Brooklyn side. Perhaps General Howe told the Admiral some stories as to the manner in which the farmers had behaved at Lexington and Bunker Hill, but whether he did or not, before the attack on the Americans was begun, he spent several days in arranging his plans, and even sent a part of the fleet up the Hudson, as if he might land a force and attack New York, and so kept Washington inside the limits. The Americans had sunk some old hulks in the Hudson, and tried to make the passage of the river difficult, if not impossible. But Howe's ships paid little more attention to these things than a great mastiff does to the barkings of a tiny terrier. On the 22nd of August, 1776, General Howe landed 20,000 of his men at Gravesend Bay, and prepared to move upon Putnam and Sullivan, who, after the illness of Green, had been placed in command of the American forces on Long Island. Before the British departed from Staten Island, however, there had been great fear and confusion all along the Jersey shore. It was a current rumor that when Howe should start for Long Island, the Hessians were to come across into New Jersey and fall upon Elizabethtown, Perth Amboy, and all the nearby country. Some of the timid Whigs are said to have kept their horses and coaches all ready before their doors for instant use. Some of the boys used to take canoes and float down the bay near to the shore of Staten Island, and in the darkness fire upon the camp of the Hessians, and then paddle away as fast as their arms could make them go. One of the British boats got around Elizabethtown Point, and word having quickly been sent among the men and boys of the region 
they assembled almost as quickly as a crowd gathers today, and before the regulars could rescue the sloop, she had been set on fire. The militia on the New Jersey shore were having frequent skirmishes with the Redcoats and Hessians on Staten Island, and the following quotations from letters written at the time will explain the character of them. Quote, Last Wednesday noon, 10th, a soldier belonging to one of the regiments on Staten Island, being in liquor, and having wandered from his companions, got on the meadows near Elizabethtown Point, which being observed by Colonel Smith, who had commanded that day at the point, he sent over a party of men who took him prisoner. Unquote. Quote, Yesterday nine of our riflemen crossed the river, sound, in order to harass some regulars who were throwing up a kind of breastwork on the bridge for their enemies, who kept firing on our men for some time without doing any execution, till one of the brave fellows went within a few yards of the enemy and desired them to surrender. At that instant he received a ball through his head, which killed him on the spot. The colonel sent over a flag of truce to the commanding officer on the island, desiring leave to bring off his man, which the officer very politely agreed to, and let him take the man, rifle, and all his accoutrements. Unquote. These events were much like the ripples on the surface of the stream, but they served to show how the British and Hessians passed their time before the Battle of Long Island. The soldiers, particularly the Hessians, had many encounters with the patriotic women left in the island, and were doused with hot water or beaten off with broomsticks when they attempted to seize the pigs or poultry of the thrifty housewives, who were bold to defend their own, although, of course, they were not always successful in their attempts. When at last Howe determined upon the attack upon the American soldiers on Long Island, the information of his departure from Staten Island was conveyed to Washington in the following manner, according to the issue of the Pennsylvania Journal of August 28, 1776. Quote, this night, August 22nd, we have reason to expect the grand attack from our barbarian enemies. The reasons why follow. The night before last, a lad went over to Staten Island, supped there with a friend, and got back safe again without being discovered. Soon after, he went to General Washington and upon good authority reported that the English army, amounting to fifteen or twenty thousand, had embarked, and were ready for an engagement, that some ships of the line, and a number of other vessels of war, were to surround the city and cover their landing, that the Hessians, being fifteen thousand, were to remain on the island and attack Perth Amboy, Elizabethtown Point, and Bergen, while the main body were doing their best at New York, that the Highlanders expected America was already conquered, and that they were only to come over and settle on our lands, for which reason they had brought their churns, plows, etc. Being deceived, they had refused fighting, upon which account General Howe had shot one, hung five or six, and flogged many. There is an abundance of smoke today on Long Island. Our folks have set fire to stacks of hay, etc., to prevent the enemy's being benefited in case they got any advantage against us. All the troops in New York are in high spirits, and have been under arms most of the day, as the fleet have been in motion, and are now, as is generally thought, only waiting for a change of tide. Forty-eight hours or less will determine it as to New York, one way or the other." Unquote. A few hours did indeed determine it, though it did the colonies great good in the end, at that time proved to be very like the bitter draft a sick man is urged to swallow. It may do good in the end, but for the present, its chastening is not joyous, but grievous. General Washington's army at this time consisted of about 18,000 men, one half of the number being on Long Island, where all summer long General Greene had been working day and night to fortify Brooklyn Heights, 
a position which, if it could be held, would assist the Continentals greatly in holding New York. Doubtless Washington had no strong hope of holding the city or the position, but desperate straits demand desperate means, and he was not one to hold back in any crisis. Two difficulties increased the American leader's perplexity, one being his ignorance as to just where Howe would strike first. If more of the patriots were withdrawn from New York, the British commander might move against the city, and if too few were left on Long Island, there would be no question as to what Howe would do in that event. So all that Washington could do was to place half his force in each place and await events. His second special difficulty was that he had been compelled by Greene's illness to place Putnam in command of the forces on Long Island, and though old Putt was as brave as he was bold, he did not have the cool head and calm judgment of the young blacksmith general from Rhode Island. The problem was soon solved, however, for on August 22nd, 20,000 of Howe's men were landed at Gravesend Bay, from which place four roads extend toward the position held by the Americans. It was in the thorough knowledge of these passes or roads that Green possessed that he greatly excelled the men who succeeded him, and probably he would have been able to arrange his forces to greater advantage than Putnam did, though that even he could have held out against the overwhelming numbers of the British was hardly to be expected. After the landing of his troops, Howe spent four days in perfecting his plans and in reconnoitering, and then, after arranging with his brother, Admiral Howe, to pretend to attack New York with his fleet and thereby hold Washington there, before sunrise on the 27th day of August, 1776, the advance of the Redcoats and their allies had been almost perfected. Lord Stirling, with a small American force, was stationed on the road nearest the coast, and against him the Scotch Highlanders, under the command of British General Grant, were sent. The largest part of the advancing army which Howe himself led, taking with him such men as Cornwallis and Clinton, marched all night long over the Jamaica Road to gain the rear flank of the Americans, while the Hessians were sent over the Bedford Road to attack Sullivan, who was stationed there. Most of the Whigs had fled from the region, and as the people who remained were for the most part extremely bitter Tories, it is no cause for surprise that the movements of the invading forces were kept secret, and were therefore successful. Caught between the Hessians and the Redcoats, Sullivan's little body of men was soon thrown into confusion, and almost all of those who were not killed were made prisoners, as was General Sullivan himself. Sterling, for four fearful hours, held his own against the Highlanders. For farmers and countrymen, the raw soldiers were fighting desperately. But at last Sterling saw that he was almost completely hemmed in by his foes, and that his only way of escape was across the Gowanus Creek. It was a forlorn hope for a few to try to keep the redcoats at bay, while the others tried to escape, but still, it was the only hope. Even then the tide in the creek was rising rapidly, and soon no one except the expert swimmers might hope to make even the attempt. Renewing the attack, for twenty minutes the most terrible conflict of the entire battle occurred. The young fellows of the regiments known as Smallwood's Marylanders and Haslett's Delawares, sons of well-to-do farmers, were especially distinguishing themselves for their valor. At last they fought their way to the shore of the creek, across which many of their comrades had already made their way, and though it was claimed at the time that of Smallwood's Marylanders, 259 fell in the fearful conflict, still many plunged into the filthy waters. Some stuck fast in the mud and were drowned, others were shot or captured, and Lord Stirling himself became a prisoner. 
Of the numbers who fell in the Battle of Long Island, it is difficult to write definitely. In the swift ship which Howe at once dispatched to bear the joyous tidings of his victory to the waiting and expectant court of King George, were the claims that the Americans had lost 3,300. The truth probably was that about 1,000 were made prisoners and 400 fell. The British loss was a trifle under the latter figure, showing that, although the untrained Americans had been defeated, nevertheless, they had compelled the victors to pay a price for their victory. The Americans on Long Island were not all prisoners, however, for between 7,000 and 8,000 men were now sheltered behind the fortifications on Brooklyn Heights, before which the victorious British encamped and rested until the morning of the 28th. The Battle of Long Island was a defeat for the Americans, and made many sad hearts among the colonists. And yet, had the Americans won, it would have led to a greater defeat afterward, instead of preparing the way for victory. As we know, there was a sad lack of harmony, to say nothing of union, among the patriot forces. Not only were the colonies jealous of one another, but there was slight willingness to have any common bond or leader. We are told that misery loves company, but whether that be true or not, certain it is that the misfortune on Long Island drove the contending patriots more closely together and made them realize that they must be more willing to recognize the needs of the whole country as well as the demands of any part, and that out of the discouragements of the weary days that followed, Washington was able to unify his forces as he never had been able to do before, nor would he have been able in the pride and arrogance which would certainly have been manifested had the American soldiers won the fight. A very successful businessman declared not long ago that he had been taught more by his failures than by his successes how to succeed. Certain it is that the defeat on Long Island was a blessing in disguise for the struggling colonies, and though at the time the disguise was complete, today we all can understand it, and it is true of many events besides the Battle of Long Island. End of chapter 12